Well, she was born on June 27, 1880, in Colbert County, Alabama. But at 19 months old, this little girl contracted an unknown illness described as doc- by doctors as an acute congestion of the stomach and brain. Perhaps it was scarlet fever, perhaps it was meningitis. And as you know, that illness left this little girl both blind and deaf. We know her by Helen. She described her own situation as living in a dense fog. Think about that for a moment. Try closing your eyes. Imagine you don't hear anything. Sometimes we ourselves describe it as deafening silence. A childhood friend, two years older than her, was able to understand her in some ways in terms of things that she was trying to express. And so sometimes she would translate for little Ellen some of her basic needs with her signs and gestures and so on. But overall, her world was very confusing and difficult. Her behavior was oftentimes described as wild or unruly, often terrorizing others with her temper tantrums and her demands, sometimes acting more like a wild animal than a little girl, getting whatever she wanted to eat off of anybody's plate. That was her existence. When Helen was six, mother convinced father, we have to do something. And so Helen's father traveled with her all the way to Baltimore to an ear, nose, and throat specialist. But the specialist simply referred them to Alexander Graham Bell, who was working with deaf children at the time. But Bell didn't feel like he could do anything for the situation, so he sent them to the Perkins Institute for the Blind in South Bend. Anybody been on this little adventure of being referred from here to there to the other? The whole time wondering, does anybody know, is there any solution or help to this problem? But it was there at the Perkins Institute that there was a school director who asked a 20-year-old young graduate, an alumnus of the school, you know her name, Ann Sullivan, who too was visually impaired in part, and she was to become Helen's instructor. The meeting took place the following year at the Keller's home back in Alabama in March of 1887. Sullivan first observed the situation then started making recommendations and doing activities to help Helen learn. But Helen did not understand. She was continually frustrated. She had no idea what this was all about. And so in her frustration, she would break things. She would kick. She would scream. Violent temper tantrums. And this continued day after day. As the parents questioned Anne's methods and practices, at times undermining the process, And so Sullivan believed that the key to reaching Helen was to teach her obedience and love and saw that she needed some discipline, not to crush the spirit of this young girl, but to help her see what's okay, what's not okay, how this relationship is going to work, how we can best move forward. And so within a week of Anne's arrival to their home, she gained permission to remove Helen from the main house and then live alone with her in a nearby cottage. No more could she run to mom. No more could she run to dad. The door was locked. It was just the two of them duking it out, if you will. They remained there for two weeks. 
Sullivan continued her task of teaching Helen by manually sig- sig- signing excuse me, into the child's hand over and over and over and over. I can't imagine the patience of that 20-year-old girl. Sullivan had brought a doll as a gift for Helen. By spelling doll into the child's hand, she hoped to teach her to connect the dots between objects and letters. Even that words existed and letters and all of this was brand new to her. And sometimes she'd even sign back, okay, fine, I can do that. But she didn't know what she was doing. She didn't know the connection until one day, and you know the story, April 5, that same year, 1887, less than a month after her arrival, she and Helen were at the water pump, pumping the water, signing the letters, pumping it again. Signing the letters again until finally there was a breakthrough as she spelled the word W-A-T-E-R first slowly, then rapidly. Suddenly the signals had meaning in Helen's mind. She knew somehow there was a connection. She was signing the word for water. This opened up a brand new world to her. And so immediately she started demanding, what's the earth? What's the ground? What's the sign for this? And she would take her hand. She started signing that and everything just started to open up for her. It was a transitional moment that would forever change her life, her existence, her future. By nightfall, she had learned 30 words. And she quickly proceeded to master the alphabet, both manual and in raised print for blind readers. And so she would learn or had learned to read. And then she even started to learn how to write. In fact, this is one of the first or one of the handwritten notes that we have from her. The letters are a little bit square. But imagine, blind. Have you ever tried to read or write anything with your eyes closed? Maybe if it's something like your signature, you've done enough times. But it's pretty tricky. Maybe you've played one of those games where you draw the picture with your eyes closed or blindfold and they have to guess what it is. And you open, you know, and finally at the end you say, why couldn't you see that was a boat? You ever played that game? But this was just two and a half months from that breakthrough moment that she wrote cat, cold, catch, latch, doll. Pretty amazing. At age 10, she expressed a desire to learn to speak. Now, how do you learn to speak if you can't watch somebody else speak, if you can't watch the lips move, if you can't watch what the tongue does, nor can you hear? What do those things can do? Now, she was disappointed. She learned how to communicate through speech, but it was hard to understand her. In fact, you can go to YouTube, and you can hear her talking, and it is difficult to understand, but those that worked with her enough knew what she was saying. Again, remarkable, but never got to the point where she was satisfied with her speech. But from a very young age, Helen was determined to go to college, and in 1898, she entered the Cambridge School for Young Ladies to prepare for Radcliffe College. And she entered Radcliffe in the fall of 1900. And she received a Bachelor's of Art degree, cum laude, in 1904. The first deaf and blind person to do so. While still a student at Radcliffe, Helen began writing a writing career that was to continue throughout her life. But it really was her autobiography that was first published in 1903, The Story of My Life, that got the most traction. And today, her autobiography has been translated into 50 languages and circulated around the world. Somehow, there's something in that story that gives us hope in our own situations, that inspires us 
to try to do something that others may say can't be done. It's impossible. It's the ultimate story of an underdog. Among her friends were Alexander Graham Bell, Mark Twain, Albert Einstein, Charlie Chapman, Henry Ford, John F. Kennedy, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, Dwight D. Eisenhower. She traveled to 35 countries, met all kinds of people. And there's many things that she's quoted as saying. One of them, perhaps the best known, is the only thing worse than being blind is having what? Sight with no vision. Now that's an okay statement, but coming from Helen Keller, that's huge. Because her circumstances frame the entire statement, don't they? It's the context, it's the person and the experience behind the words that people look at that and they say, wow. Another one, when one door of happiness closes, another one opens. But often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one which has been opened for us. Again, very profound, considering the context of who's making the statement. And so we have two individuals here. Ann Sullivan is on your right, and mostly Helen Keller is on your left. Immense obstacles that they overcame, challenges difficult circumstances. But you could say of each of them, they chose to live above their circumstances. Isn't that true? It was a choice that was made that we're going to push through this. We're going to make something of ourselves in spite of this. We're not going to be held hostage by our challenging circumstances. And so today we're continuing with Paul on our series, A Man of Grace and Grit, and today's piece I'm calling Living Above Your Circumstances. And Paul was certainly a man that chose, I believe, to live above his circumstances. And you might say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Because the reality is, life happens. Circumstances are often out of our control. So the question truly is, do we let the challenges of life destroy us, or by God's grace, do we rise above them? Last time we saw Paul, he was battling with a storm for 14 days. They were dashed on the rocks, but because of the graciousness of God, all 276 aboard were saved. Not one was lost. And the first part of Acts 28, the island people show them great kindness. And while there, we see Paul has an impact on those people for the days and months that they are there. He's ministering to the people. He heals many while he is there. And you can read that later today. That would be a fine read. First part of Acts chapter 28. But then by the time we get to verse 11, time has passed. The season allows for sailing again. And after many pit stops along the way, and it tells us where they went. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 28, verse 16, it says they finally reach Rome. So if you have your Bibles, let's just read it. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. Finally, they had arrived in Rome. You'll recall that Rome was the last dominant world power. Rome was the iron legs of Daniel 2. And at that time, Rome was the biggest, most powerful, wealthiest city of the world. At its peak... Some estimate that four to five million people lived in the city. That's the equivalent of Los Angeles today. 
Rome had its own fire brigade, police force, postal service, a sewer system that swept away 55 tons of waste a day. Would you think, why share that? That was way ahead of their time. And if you don't think that's a big deal, take your, your plumbing out of your house and let me know how it goes. House apartment style buildings that were up to six stories tall. And Rome was polytheistic with a great number of gods and goddesses, many of which were borrowed from Greece. And their success as a nation was a tribute, they said, to their gods. And so there are various rituals they would perform in their various temples. The upper class lived a life of ease in Rome. They went to theaters to watch live plays, had the largest libraries anywhere in the world. Rome was known for its great baths and extensive water systems, complete with artificial lakes, canals, aqueducts. That's where it simply carries the water on these bridges for miles and miles and miles. Took 14 years to build some of the aqueducts. 14,000 blocks of stone with the strongest concrete known to this day. Special ingredient was from volcanic volcanic ash mixed with limestone and seawater. And these aqueducts pumped 250 gallons of water to the city of Rome each day. And throughout the architecture of the city were great arches and basilicas, or those great domes on top of buildings. And the people were entertained by large amphitheaters. There is this famous Roman Colosseum, which would have been built probably 10 to 15 years after Paul was there. But it would seat 50,000 spectators for a variety of events. That included gladiator contests, oftentimes animal hunts, reenactments of famous battles. One time they even flooded the Colosseum so they could reenact a sea battle, if you will. The arena also had 36 trap doors for special effects, as well as many underground passages and rooms to hold wild animals and gladiators before the games began. They even would sell the sweat of a gladiator to the spectators after they won. And what type of animals? Well, lions, tigers, rhinos, crocodiles, bears, to name a few. So this gives you perhaps an idea of the civilization Paul was entering into. There was a lot of wealth, a lot of selfishness, a lot of pride, a lot of ego, a lot of ease. And here Paul finally then arrived in Rome. Finishing verse 16, though, it says, But Paul was permitted... I think for no other reason than his reputation that came before him. It says he was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So he's not in this dungeon per se. He's under house arrest. And we see here at the very end of the chapter, verse 30 and 31, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. So he rented the house. I imagine he paid the rent. The guard was there with him at all times, but he had much more at his disposal than a normal prisoner. Verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So here Paul is, two years. This is his situation. This is what he has to work with. And so you get the scene. He's never alone. The guard is always there. We could say that Paul is being quarantined, but not for a couple of weeks, 14 days, we might say today, not for four months. Paul is being quarantined in his rented house for how long did the text say? Two years. People come and go, but he has to stay. I don't know about you, but I imagine if it were me, my patience would wear thin, and maybe I know a little bit more what this is like after the last four months than I would have before. Home is good. I love home. 
I love to come back to home. But sometimes you got to go somewhere so you can come back home. Anybody here had cabin fever? I just got to get out of the house. Where are you going? Anywhere. No worry, honey. I'll watch the kids. Wait till that growl goes away before you come back. No, I'm just kidding. She never growls. I do the growling. But if you notice in this passage, we don't see Paul anxious for things to progress. He always seems to be content. He makes the most of anywhere God places him for as long as God feels like it's best for him to be there. And again, the same thing that we see in Luke's account is what we see here again in Rome, going back to verse 17, and it says, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. And so they all come together, men and brethren, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And so he kind of carries on a little bit and says, this is what's happened to me. I don't know what you've heard. And they come back and say, we really haven't heard anything except that this is pretty divisive what's going on. Please tell us firsthand. And so he does. And the verses tell us in verse 22 to 24. So when they, verse 23, but we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning the sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. Verse 23, so when they appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And so here again is Paul giving another Bible study. All the church folks have come out and they want to say, okay, you're talking about this Jesus fellow and you say he's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Tell us more about that. What do you base that on? And so from morning until evening, this Bible study goes on and on and on. And who else happens to be there listening? The Roman guard, taking it all in. I mean, this is new to them. This is new, 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 new to him. But listening, listening, listening. Verse 24, and some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. Kind of par for the course at this point, isn't it? Some believed, some, or oftentimes most, did not. And so verse 28, 28, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to whom? The Gentiles. And they will hear it. Again, same song. I don't even know what verse we're on. This has happened time and time and time again. But again, Paul complaining? Is he frustrated? Is he angry? Does he throw anything here in the chapter? Does he put any of these Jewish people in a chokehold? He doesn't. He shares. Some believe, some are persuaded, and some don't. He says, that's fine. I'll go to the Gentiles, just like I've done so many times before. Now, there's no question the route had been difficult. But despite all the challenges, the book ends triumphantly. We'll read verse 31 again. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. How does the book end? The the book of Acts. It ends with Paul preaching about the Lord with all confidence. He's not scratching his head and saying, maybe I'm wrong. If it doesn't convince all of you, maybe there's a problem. Nope. And what's remarkable to me is the incredible hardship endured by Paul, yet not even a hint of complaint. Nothing about being confined in this place. Nothing about a lack of privacy concerning his Roman soldier, always watching, always present, always there. Nothing about his cramped quarters. Paul isn't even seen asking for favors. On top of that, we don't see Paul holding grudges either. We see time and again that this this man, Paul, simply would not 
grumble. Somehow, and I have to say by God's grace, he lived above it all. He believed in divine appointments, and I can hear him often and again repeating the very words, I have learned the secret to be content wherever God places me. And where do we find that? Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. And when did Paul write that? During these two years on house arrest that Paul writes the Philippians. One of the prison epistles, as it's called, along with Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. No, Paul doesn't just sit on his hands, but rather sees opportunity to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes the prison epistles, and it is there that we see Paul not grumbling about his circumstances, but by God's grace rising above them and using the opportunity to spread the gospel. In fact, in Philippians, Paul speaks of his circumstances three times. Do you want to see them? Here's the first time that he mentions his circumstances in Philippians. This is taken from the New American Standard Version. And it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. We'll come back to that idea. Second time it's mentioned, it's in Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Notice that contentment is not a genetic trait. Paul was not born with this trait. It was not a talent of his. Rather, it was something he learned to do, I would think, over time. Through the power of Christ, Paul had learned to encounter a broad spectrum of stressful situations without letting circumstances impact him negatively. He learned how to sustain an excellent attitude. He learned to live above his circumstances. And then the third time, finishing this verse, I know how to get along with, the, with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Three times he emphasizes how circumstances do not determine his level of contentment. No conditions, no restrictions, no boundaries. No, in any and every circumstance, I have learned, Paul says, this secret. And what is it? To be content, regardless of his station in life. By God's grace, Paul lived above his circumstances. And I would wager if Paul could learn this, maybe we by God's grace, can learn this too. You know, this afternoon we're remembering the wonderful life of Joe Paget, who himself went through a host of health challenges going back many, many years. And I remember it every time that I would visit with them or see him, whether it was down in our fellowship hall, whether it was down in his basement getting dialysis. That was the last time I saw him, the very start of this summer. Joe, how are you doing? I'm blessed. That was his only response. I'm blessed. God has been good to me. Yeah, but Joe, isn't it? Is it uncomfortable? Is it hard? Is it? I'm blessed. God is good. I can't honestly remember a time that he was down in the mouth, that he was discouraged, that he, you know, and he just would speak faith and hope and say, God has been so good to me. He had learned the secret on oxygen, on dialysis, going through the whole thing again. I'm blessed. And it wasn't only Joe that learned the secret. Elaine learned the secret too. What about you? 
Have you learned the secret of contentment? By God's grace, are you living above your circumstances? Because the reality is, many of us find ourselves in situations far less than ideal. Life has not only become difficult, but frustrating. And at times, it can feel like life is becoming more miserable by the day. And for some here this morning, life may be borderline unbearable. And if we're not careful, our situations, our circumstances, most certainly will embitter us. Some turn us into someone who lives under a dark cloud, where doom and gloom characterize our outlook. Now, life is hard. There's no question about it. Maybe you, too, live in a situation that resembles house arrest. Maybe you, too, feel restricted, chained to your circumstances. Maybe you, too, feel caught, like you're caught in a storm at times. Maybe you, too, feel that your counsel is being ignored. Maybe you, too, feel sidelined, abandoned, misrepresented, or even persecuted. Maybe you, too, had to leave some of your dearest friends and support behind. Maybe you, too, feel very much alone. Maybe you also feel misunderstood. Or maybe your past gets thrown back into your face. But I would be surprised to find out that some of you persecuted actively the lives of God's followers. I would be shocked, in fact, to learn that you have blood on your own hands. And I'm not speaking figuratively, but literally. No question, Paul had a dark past. Paul had every reason to experience PTSD. Perhaps there were times he woke up in a cold sweat, remembering the innocent faces of the men or women that pleaded for mercy right before he brutally murdered them in cold blood. But somehow, by the miraculous power of God, we don't hear any grumbling from Paul. We don't hear any woes me from Paul. Somehow, by God's grace, he learned the secret to rise above his challenging circumstances to rise above his past experiences, to rise above his present realities. And maybe for you, life has become so overwhelming. All you seem to be able to do is recount your past failures, to rehearse your current dilemma, to give constant voice to your woes. And maybe you have lived this way for so long, the negative thinking has become a habit. But let me tell you, there is hope beyond your circumstances, friends. You can, by God's grace, live above them. If a man named Paul, by God's grace, could live above his circumstances, so can you. And let's look at the benefits real quick. Do you know how Paul did it? Well, in what is thought to be one of Paul's earliest letters. Oh, we'll get that later. Let's look at some of the benefits. Number one, the progress of the gospel is accelerated. That's one of the benefits of living above your circumstances. Let's see an example of that. Philippians 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Greater progress? That's what it says. Paul is saying that his bad situation is helping the cause. Have you ever looked at your challenging circumstance that way? That now you have a greater opportunity for a a more powerful, more effective witness? Well, they are. When life is easy... And everything is falling into place? Not so much. But when you go through a trial, after trial, after trial, and you keep smiling, you're cheerful, you're filled with joy and contentment. Now, wait a minute. How is this possible? How can this person go through all of this mess and still be joyful? Well, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And it doesn't matter my circumstances. I know in whom I have believed. And people start to say, now, hold on. I need what you have. I'm not going through half what you're going through, but look at how well you're doing. 
Tell me your secret. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. No, Paul never viewed his confinement as a barrier to the gospel, but rather as a catalyst for wider impact. Acts of the Apostles 4.54 says this, Thus, while apparently cut off from active labor, this is talking about when he's in house arrest, when he's there in Rome, he's cut off from everybody outside. It says, Paul exerted a wider and more lasting influence than if he had been free to travel among the churches as in former years. Really? Wider? More lasting? Again, that's what it says. Let's go to the second one here. Benefits of living above your circumstances. Number two, the edge of the message is sharpened. What does that mean exactly? Another verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, continuing on, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Think about that for a second. Here we have this sharpening, if you will, of the gospel. The message of Christ's love permeated not just Jews, Not just Gentiles, but the Roman palace guard. Secular as they were. Self-centered as they were. Not because of some speech, but because of how Paul lived his life. And they witnessed it over and over, and it had an impact. The message was sharpened. And notice how many imperial soldiers? Not just one, but it says, the whole palace guard. Some scholars suggest that was a group of 9,000 individuals. And how did it start? One Roman soldier chained to one man. And well, the rest is history. After soldier, after soldier, after soldier, in connection with Paul, seeing his circumstances and seeing how he rose above them by the grace of God, they laid down the arms of their heart and surrendered to a new commander. How thrilling that must have been to witness firsthand Roman guards giving their lives to Jesus Christ. No, the gospel was sharpened, not dulled, because Paul saw his circumstances as opportunity to launch the message rather than slump and grumble in despair. Praise the Lord. And the third one, the courage of others is strengthened. Philippians chapter 1, verse 14, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Who was the brethren in the Lord? Well, it could have been the Roman soldiers who joined the ranks. It also could have been believers around the world that he was writing to. But the idea is that because of Paul's chains, because of Paul's imprisonment, they are more confined, or sorry, not as confined, but more bold in speaking God's truth. More confident is the word I'm trying to look for. More confident and more bold in speaking God's truth. Why? Because here's a man in chains for the gospel, yet he is unmoved. His fate is grim, yet he says things like this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he didn't just say it. He lived it. It wasn't just lip service. This man was sold out. And friends, let me tell you, that makes a lasting impression. More than anything else you can do, when you live your faith, the gospel is accelerated, the gospel is sharpened, and it encourages others in profound ways. Now, my dad was a pastor and, and uh, pastored College Dale for, I think, 20 years or something. We had some friends there in the community. <clears throat> And one of them was, um, he would come to church with his family, but he wasn't really the, the church kind of guy. I mean, Sabbath morning was it. Uh, he had a lot of other things to do, and that was fine. And, but he and his son, or his son and, and me, were good friends. Or, and so we talked a fair bit. I stayed at their house a fair bit. And one time, we actually had a spiritual conversation. It wasn't long, 
but he said something to the effect of this. He says, you know, your dad's an okay speaker. He said, I don't mean any offense to that. He's an okay speaker. But you know how he speaks to me most? By watching how he lives his life. Most powerful sermon you'll ever preach. I don't remember how old I was at that time, but I, I remember it to this day. There's another quote here from Acts of the Apostles 454. It says, his words, talking about Paul, written by one under bonds for the sake of Christ, commanded greater attention and respect than they did when he was personally with them. And how was Paul able to do all this? How was he able to rise above his circumstances? Why was his written word of greater attention and respect now? Because they saw what he was suffering for. They saw his overwhelming circumstances and how he raised him above them by God's grace. And people said, I got to listen to this. I need to pay attention. There's something here. He's willing to suffer. And friends, I want to tell you that Paul did not rise above his circumstances because he attended some workshop on positive thinking. It wasn't because of a stack of self-help books promising to shore up a sagging self-confidence. No, Paul's secret was not found in a program, but in a person. Christ made the difference. What did he say? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So many times we say, I can't do this. To which I would be quick to say, you're right, you can't. I can't take it anymore. You're right, you can't. I can't do this any longer. You're right, you can't. But you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. And here's the verse I wanted to share with you because I believe Paul learned this early on. In one of his earliest composed letters, we find this statement, which is one of my favorites. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. How can you do it? It's not me. How can you continue? How can you go on? How can you face the world? It's not me. I'm dead. I died a long time ago. Or maybe the more truth or truthful saying is, I died again this morning. Christ had become his central focus. And if we want to live above our circumstances, Christ must be our central focus as well. It was through Christ that his servant Paul learned to endure all situations, every circumstance, every difficult challenge, no matter how bad, through Christ's power. Paul released all rights to his master, and in turn, his master released all the power and strength Paul needed. And Christ alone can teach you to live above the duress of the adversity you're facing. Your circumstances may not change, but deep within, you will. As Christ is allowed first place in your thoughts, changes will occur. And those changes will be evident to your spouse and your children, your friends, your co-workers. And instead of seeing yourself as a victim, God will show you how to live as the victor. As you begin to realize strength that is not your own. And your contentment, despite your circumstances, will be nothing short of a miracle, a God thing that will accelerate the gospel, that will sharpen the message, and that will encourage others. These are two of some of our favorite people. I was first introduced to Jim and Sandra when Elizabeth and I were dating. She says, you have to come up to the mountain. We were going to school at Southern at the time. This was about two hours away. It's kind of in between where we are now and, and College Dale. And so I remember that first Saturday afternoon driving up that gravel road, and they're all up against the Pisgah Forest. And so it's just beautiful property that they have there that God has blessed them with. And you just feel like you're going into North Mills River or something. It's just gorgeous. And so we would explore the creeks and just have a wonderful time there. Elizabeth would bring, I don't know how many college kids at a time, oftentimes calling just, you know, hours before saying, hey, I'm bringing 10 kids over for the weekend. And it was Sandra. 
who would say, sure, bring them on. It's not until more recently Elizabeth said, what did I do to her? She would cook and make it look easy and prepare all kinds of food and just put it out there and just engage with us, the both of them. And so always all the way through, in fact, I engaged to Elizabeth just down the creek from this picture. Her family always likes to come down there after Christmas, around New Year's, and so that's a tradition. In fact, it goes a lot further back for Elizabeth. They would go there on furlough from Africa every summer. They would come back and Russia and other places. And that, in so many ways, is more home to Elizabeth than any place else, Andrews, North Carolina. And so we just have a special place in our hearts for Angie's North Carolina. Uh, Here's another picture of Sandra with uh, one of her grandchildren and uh, just a wonderful couple. And she was almost like another, or both of them, like another set of parents to us. Here she is with Lauren. I don't know if you can recognize Lauren there. She's grown a little bit since that picture. And Matthew has too. But then things started happening where Jimmy started noticing that her mind was not as sharp as it should be, and she was forgetting things and starting to repeat things, and meant appointments here in Asheville and back and forth, and uh, I put this picture in because I remember this day very keenly as it was at our house with Ted and Nancy there that we had a special anointing for Sandra, and we prayed for her that something might change and there might be some medication or something that could be done, but we watched her continue to deteriorate over years, and uh, it was a challenge. For all of us to go through that, you see little Marianne there. That was this, just this last fall. Uh, there she is with her two kids, staying at home. In fact, she died there at home. And then after she passed away, she was placed in this pine box. We went out and dug a hole on the property where Mary Lou and, and Don, uh, Jimmy's parents and Nancy's parents are. And we had a little service there. It was kind of an impromptu thing. I shared a few words. We all cried some tears. But why do I share this with you? I already cried my tears this morning. I think it's, it's passed. Because as I watched all that transpire, not just on that day that we put her in the ground, but in all the many days leading up to that, the challenges leading up to that, as I saw Jimmy deal with that day in and day out and take incredible care of her, as we watched her pass, as we cried our tears, there was a strength in Jimmy that was palpable. He was sad. He was grieving. But he was strong. He says, you know, I know it's best for her that she fall asleep. I know I'm going to see her again. I know where her heart was. And he just kept talking faith through the whole thing. And sometimes we view death as this big, huge, ugly thing, and you'll never get past it. If that were to happen, my whole life would just be wrecked. Not true. And I've watched others in this, this very church that have gone through similar things, challenging circumstances, and you too have risen above those circumstances. And it's been an encouragement To me, there is life after somebody passes away. There is joy and peace and contentment after something of this nature happens. And so, yes, you can mourn and you can cry, and those are all okay. Those all need to happen. But I remember leaving, thinking, if Jimmy can go through that with that kind of faith and trust in the Lord, I think I can too. That's the encouragement of others. When you see them, in their most challenging circumstance, rise above it by the grace of God, and somebody else sees it, and they say, you know, if they can do it, maybe by God's grace I can do it too. Maybe I can claim those same promises. Maybe it'll be okay. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The reality is that our most challenging circumstances give Christ his greatest opportunity to be glorified. And really, that shouldn't be such a new idea. At Jesus' crucifixion, circumstances seem to be at their worst. 
But it was also there that his glory was shown the most. And Paul points to this and challenges us to do the same. And through Christ, through his strength, through his power, his grace, his Holy Spirit, we can do the same. We too can live above our circumstances for the glory of the Father. What did Paul write? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, or in other translations it says to use his divinity to his own advantage but rather made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, the lowest of the low. As the Son of God hung naked on a tree to the scorn of the world. But friends, it doesn't end there. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? Glory of God the Father. When Christ's circumstances seemed to be at their worst, God was glorified at his best. Desire of Ages says, Christ in his humiliation was glorified. He who in all other eyes appeared to be conquered was a conqueror. Amen. Another one here. All the efforts of Satan to oppress and overcome. Is, it say, is the devil taking a nap as he clocked out? Not at all. He still seeks to oppress and overcome. But every effort to overcome him only brought in a purer light of his spotless character. It simply was another avenue for which Christ could be glorified. And so Paul's challenge is for us. Let this mind be in you. That when we suffer, when we go through trying times, by his grace we may not complain. We may not grumble. We may not be discouraged. Not to have our eyes fixed on our circumstances, but rather fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of that song. What are we to fear? What are we to dread if we're leaning on your everlasting arms? Lord, we know that this world is filled with trials and challenges for everyone here. But we also know the promises that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, and that the peace that passes all understanding can be ours when we lean upon you. Lord, help us not to focus on our circumstances, but help us to focus on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.